Hello, I'm Manohar and this is the Uncommon Transitions podcast. Each episode, I have a conversation with someone who has made a transition from one line of work to something very different. From IT to the social sector, for instance, or from management consulting to journalism, from advertising to spirituality, perhaps. Together with my guests, I explore this transition to figure out what drove them to this change, how the change has panned out, and what they've learned from it. We speak about the differences between the occupations they've had and how the transition has impacted them personally. My guest today is someone who chose to become a social entrepreneur after about a decade in the IT industry. Atish Balakrishnan started his career as a researcher at INSEAD in France. After a couple of years, he returned to India and joined the software company SAP in Bangalore, where he worked for over a decade before co-founding Sattva, a consulting firm focused on the social sector. Ratish and I have known each other since his days at SAP, where we were colleagues. In this conversation, we talk about his career arc spanning two decades. We explore his love for writing and theatre, his passion for creating social impact, and his work in the corporate world. Ratish didn't leave the corporate world because he disliked it. On the contrary, he says he loved working at SAP. Then why did he leave it? How does he compare people and work in the social sector with those in the corporate world? How did Ratish's interest in writing and theatre lead him to his current role and how do they influence him today? What made him read the Harry Potter series seven times end to end? These are some of the many questions you'll find answered in this episode. It's a long conversation filled with insights and fun. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Good morning, Ratesh. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Manohar. How are you? Good, good. So we need to cover a lot of ground across the different occupations you've had. Uh, but I'd like to begin with uh, your current role. Can you tell me a little bit about your current role in Sattva and a bit about Sattva also? Yeah, so I am a, a co-founder and a managing partner at uh, Sattva. I uh, manage all the work that we do across foundations and nonprofits within Sattva. Sattva itself is a for-profit consulting organization focused on social impact. And our vision is to end poverty in our lifetime. We do that in four ways. We work with people who have money and want to invest in the social impact sector and advise them on how to invest that money and how to maximize the impact they can create. We work with nonprofit organizations uh, across the globe in helping them building their capability so that they can scale the impact that they're creating on the ground. Uh, we conduct research to help inform decision making for both nonprofit organizations and foundations through actual actionable data. Uh, we also build technology products and solutions adjacent to our consulting work that can create nonlinear impact outside of the work we do in consulting as well. This kind of a role is obviously is not a usual nine to five job where you come back and just forget about work. It requires, I guess, uh, a lot of empathy towards the social causes that you're working on. You need to probably dip into the reservoir of empathy when the going gets tough and so on. You probably also need to have a strong and sustained desire to create a kind of social impact. So I'm curious a little bit about the origins of this desire, this this uh, feeling for um, the marginalized sections of society and the desire to create social impact. When did that begin? I think a lot of it is essentially from the family background I come from. So I, I come from a lower middle class family. I, I like to tell people that I, I grew up in the kindness of strangers. Uh, I've been on scholarships from the age of 10. 
um, a lot of people are in my life at different parts of my life have uh, demonstrated extreme kindness for me to be able to get the benefits or the access that i got you know be it my college education be it my jobs and so on so for me it was uh, actually a foregone conclusion that uh, i will contribute to the society in some way or the other and even when i was a kid i was part of multiple groups volunteer groups associations that actually actively engaged in uh, creating societal impact but i think a lot of what um, what i'm doing today the empathy that you're referring to manohar comes from my own personal background uh, and my childhood experiences and so on speaking of childhood experiences what other interests did you have in childhood ratish i know that later you were interested in theater but did that uh, interest manifest early yeah i think um, there there in my my life has actually been a, a combination of three tracks at almost all my life i think since age of 9 or 10 uh, one has been the the what i would call the academic and the professional pursuit that i've had deep school with pilani and uh, sap etc etc which is what i've been doing either academically or professionally uh, the second track of work that's been an enduring uh, focus in my life has been writing uh, so i've uh, be it poetry be it uh, prose uh, fiction non fiction i've actually been writing since the age of 9 until recently um, you know i used to write fairly regularly uh both at a personal capacity but also for some select magazines and so on as well uh so writing has been another passion and third has been theater again i i think i was on stage for the first time when i was 9 or 10 and i think between uh, 1991 to 2009 i was probably on stage every year of my life in some form or the other be it in uh, bits pilani be it in uh, in bangalore or be it uh, back when i was in school in chennai We must get back to the writing and theatre tracks later in the conversation, but let's now spend some time in the early part of your career. So you graduated from BITS in two thousand one, and then went to France to do an internship at INSEAD, and then stayed on there for a couple of years to work as a researcher. And then in two thousand four, you came back after a couple of years in France. Tell me a bit about that transition. Why exactly did you return to India? Yeah, I had a. I mean, I had a great time. just looking back i think i was young uh, i was doing some really exciting work working with really smart people and uh, the exposure that i was getting being in these large european commission meetings with uh, very very senior and experienced researchers from across the globe actually including people places like israel uh, was fascinating uh, but at the same time i realized that i i had reached a point where either i had to choose to be a researcher and continue my research focus which i was clear i didn't want to do uh i was too early to do an mba because i didn't really have a professional work experience uh and i had to sort of um, you know find uh, or the other option was to come back to india and for me the the third option was something that i was constantly going back to for multiple reasons one was that i was acutely aware when i was in france that outside of the fantastic work that i was doing i was part of a cultural context that i didn't quite appreciate or understand and i remember being in multiple moments where i realized that this didn't make any sense at all that i was essentially trying to kind of fit into a culture or a context i didn't quite understand uh, second um, i really wanted to be volunteering and supporting and be part of social impact initiatives and uh, that was another important thing at the same time uh, the insiad mba graduates at that at that point in time were also advising me saying the action really is in india Uh, when uh, in 2004 there were so many changes happening in the country and they said as a young professional it makes sense for you to be in india rather than be in europe uh, and all of these things together kind of um, you know um, was why i made the transition 
So looking back, do you think that was a good decision, even in terms of the timing to move back to India at that time? I, I don't think it's a very popular decision in, in the family, to be honest. I think that uh, it never was. What I've realized over time about decision making is that there's no right decision at some point. Right? It's really what you make out of it. Looking back, the fact that I did come back, that I did volunteer and I did participate in the Indian theater circuit in some form and also start Sattva and do something that is so core to the milieu that we are a part of today in the country, I think makes that decision worthwhile. Interesting. But of course, when you came back to India, you first uh, joined also SAP, right? And you worked there for about 10 years. And in parallel, as you said, you were also working on your writing and your theater related interests and so on. But uh, I'm curious a little bit about that SAP experience, because it is not a short one, right? You probably spent a decade there from 2004 until 2015. Talk me through some of the highlights of the SAP experience and the corporate experience you had over there and the different kind of roles you spent time in. Yeah. So people always, uh, you know, describe their entrepreneurial experience as a point where they got tired of their corporate experience. They hated working in these big companies and they wanted a change. And for me, it was absolutely not the case at all. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed being at SAP. I, I enjoyed every role I played there. I think it's a great organization. It just is the case that I enjoy what I do at Sattva better. So I, I want to start prefacing my entire answer with that because I, I don't think there is a sob story or a, or a story of frustration in my experience at Sattva as well uh, at all or at SAP at all. At SAP, I actually, the good thing for me was, uh, um, you know, I had a chance to transition into multiple roles uh, throughout my career. So I started in engineering, uh, where I was actually coding and building some infrastructural components uh, for software project management, etc. And then moved on to becoming a project leader that allowed uh, me to manage a track of work rather than just write the code. And then moved from there to product management, where I was able to design and uh, specify the products that had to be built rather than building them. Then to solution management, where I had a chance to engage with the sales and go-to-market teams across the globe. And then uh, a stint also on the corporate strategy team, where outside of the product uh, lens, I actually saw the organizational lens of how SAP as an organization was working. And it was a very interesting transition that over, the, over 10 years, I was constantly looking at the same problem, which is to deliver business software uh, to, to the globe, to some of the biggest companies from multiple lenses, from one a worm eye view as a developer in a system to a, a, a sort of a bird eye view that I got in the corporate strategy team. And I think this idea of abstracting to a higher level of detail at every stage in my career was, I think, a hugely valuable experience. I think the second big highlight was also just the people that I work with. I mean, I think I had some of the best managers uh, throughout my career. And I also fortunately had the right managers for the right time, you know, uh, throughout my stint at SAP. And thirdly, working in a German company and also a, a, an international organization gives you two things. One is it gives you a strong grounding in structure and process which I have to admit when I came to Sattva was extremely valuable as we grew the organization. And at the same time, there was, there was this ability or an experience of working across such diverse cultures. Uh, you know, my first team, I remember the very first meeting I had Sattva, uh, sorry, the very first meeting I had at SAP, I remember there was a Russian uh, colleague, a Belarusian colleague, a Chinese colleague, a German colleague, and myself standing around a coffee table. And I said, okay, this is, this is as global as it can get, you know, and uh, that also just brings a certain worldview to the work that you do that I think I carry till today. 
Uh, the aspect of the people you worked with and the kind of influence they've had and so on, I can totally second that having also worked at SAP for a couple of decades. Really, that's been one of the highlights of my experience too. So throughout your SAP experience, you also stayed connected to the social impact side of things as well, right? So you talked a little bit about it before, but can you expand on that? So how were you involved on the social impact side when you're working at SAP? Like I said, the day I landed, I knew that I had to do something in the social impact space uh, in Bangalore. So a couple of things happened around the same time. The first thing, of course, is SAP was setting up this CSR initiative called SAPORT that they were talking about and they were looking for core volunteers to join. And I, uh, you know, volunteered myself and started engaging first in some of the last mile activities that they were organizing, but slowly moved up to this core team of people that were actually kind of deciding and setting up initiatives for CSR at SAP. So a lot of my experience with the social sector, one happened within SAP itself, but at the same time, um, in addition to what I was doing at SAP, um, in 2014, I got a chance to reconnect with Krishna. And Krishna was a classmate of mine in Bitspilani. And uh, he'd call me one day and said, hey, we are starting this magazine called Sattva. Uh, I know you like writing and I know you, you, know, you care about impact. You want to be a part of this whole uh, initiative. Uh, and that is how the second phase of my social impact journey actually started, which was outside of SAP, where every month a bunch of us met in Airlines Hotel and thought about bringing out an online monthly magazine on social impact. Between 2004 and 2009, I think my brush with the social sector was where largely these two experiences. One, what I was doing within the CSR ambit of SAP. The other was uh, working and releasing this online magazine on social impact. Right. So in 2009, you people started the organization Satwa itself, right? So the magazine became a kind of company. So that was also a kind of transition. How did that come about? Yeah. So the bunch of us that were working on this were running two initiatives in parallel. One I was a part of, which is the online magazine called Satwa. In addition to that, there was also a consulting outfit that that we had started. That went on to do some operational consulting work for uh, non-profits in Bangalore. And uh, during this time, uh, Krishna, who again was a guy who gave me a call, uh, went to NCR to do his MBA. And during his time at NCR, and while he was doing his MBA, he kept coming back and saying, listen, what we are doing at Sattva, be it the magazine or the consulting work, actually has a huge potential and can become a, an actual company. Uh, so when he did finish his graduation from uh, NCR Business School and came back, he said, listen, why don't we start this as an organization? Four of us came together, all four of us from Bitspilani came together and said, let's make this an organization uh, and started a, started Sattva, the private limited company that exists today. Right. So there was there were quite a few years where you were actually working on both these uh, sites, right? Your full-time job at SAP and probably working in the evenings and weekends at Sattva. And you had things to manage at home. Uh, I would assume that would have been a difficult phase. How, looking back, how do you see that phase? Yeah, I think the, <laughs> the one word of advice I would tell anyone who wants to do something like that is to not to do it. Uh, you know, it, it, I'd assumed at that point in time uh, that, uh, you know, I, my, given my inhuman skills and capabilities, that I would actually do two full-time jobs at the same time and keep my family running. Uh, but what actually happened is that it was, it was a little bit of a tilting of the scales during that period of time that was fairly... Uh, subconscious that was happening. So in 2009, if you look at my life, it was 80% SAP and then 20% uh, Sattva or 10% Sattva, right? So it essentially was largely 
an SAP life and I was doing some work on, on the side with uh, Sattva. And, and the reason for that was very simple. The reason for that was uh, that I come from a lower middle class background. I have no romanticism about poverty or financial struggle, you know, and I really wanted to be sure that Sattva as a business was viable, you know. And I said, till that happens, I'm going to continue working for SAP. And between 2009 to 2011, I would say, it was, Sattva was still an experiment on the side. Of course, it gave me a high, you know, being an entrepreneur and doing some of this work. Uh, but it was, the center was largely around uh, the work I was doing at SAP. And that's around when the corporate strategy fellowship and so on also had happened. But by 2012, I had realized that uh, Sattva was never going to grow unless all of us came in a full time. And all of us put in that immense amount of effort um, that is required uh, to actually make this company uh, thrive and be successful. And between 2012 to 2014 for me was um, was a phase where I think I tried to do a 50-50 between both Sattva and SAP. So I would typically wake up at around 4 a.m., uh, work till 7 a.m. on Sattva, then I'll go to work at SAP. Evening, sometimes, sometimes I drove to the other end of Bangalore to be in my uh, Sattva office after SAP, worked there, came home around 12 or 1 a.m., and yeah, it took a immense toll uh, on you know, on health and well-being overall. But I think more importantly, just the pressure I think that uh, it put on the family was immense at that point in time. And really, it was it, it was that two years that I think looking back was critical for me to a get to the place where 2014, 15, I could get the confidence that listen, Satwa could be something I could do full time, you know. And, and that and the scale started to tilt at that point in time. By 2014, it was really 80% Sattva and 20% SAP. And I'd also reached a point where I realized that if I, the longer I would stay at SAP, two things are going to happen. One, I'll continue to not be able to deliver my 100% at Sattva, which will adversely impact the organization. And two is the credibility that I'd really built at SAP till then uh, you know, would, would be hurt significantly. So I had to take a call. It took me about six to nine months to get the systems in place and the finances in place to make that decision. But by 2014, I think it was clear that uh, one part of this, this SAP part of my journey was really coming to an Now, I mean, you've talked a bit about you know, the transition. You said this was a gradual transition and you kind of set yourself up to a point where you, know, you took that decision. But I'm curious also about that decision itself because you have this consulting bent of mind and I assume that uh, you probably would have some framework as well. I'm just thinking a little bit about these decision frameworks. I was reading recently Stephen Johnson's book called Farsighted. It's about how we make decisions that matter the most. And uh, early in that book, he gives an interesting example of Charles Darwin. Darwin at some point in time had uh, a certain decision to take. The decision was about whether he should get married or not. And so he had two facing pages in his notebook and arguing for marriage and against. And uh, under the heading not marry, he listed things like freedom to go where one liked or choice of society and little of it, uh, conversation of clever men at clubs. You know, it's interesting. Some of these things, you can also take it uh, into a list even today. And under the ma- heading marry, he said things like constant companion who will find, who will feel interested in you object to be beloved and play, played with and so on. It's a charming list, but I'm curious, when, did you have a decision framework when you, you know, finally took the plunge? And what are the factors? For example, I mean, you talked about finance. So you wanted to come to a stage where financially you wouldn't take such a big hit uh, when you moved to Sattva. What are the other factors? And did you have some kind of a framework when you took the decision? 
Yeah, it's funny, Manohar, that you asked me this question because I reflect on this very often. I, as a consultant or as somebody who has a very structured way of solving problems, I find it. I find myself often creating very effective frameworks for the easier decisions in life. You know, which fridge to buy, <laughs> which television, what computer. I think it's easy to put a decision-making framework on for that because it's a unit decision, it's a unit choice, and you can say that this is what uh, you will have to look at to buy this. You know. I find that for some of the biggest decisions we make in life, such as who to marry, right, what jobs to take, what career choices uh, are you going to do, it is almost um, useless to put a larger decision-making framework uh, to say that, okay, this is why I'm going to do what I'm going to do, because they're so driven by that fundamental instinct of what you believe is the right thing to do, that the framework becomes a way of rationalizing to your logical self as to why you're making that decision. But the choice that you're making is coming from fairly deep within a place that, uh, you know, is outside of the realm of uh, the thinking mind, you know. And uh, I think what helps is to have a checklist. A checklist is different from a decision-making framework. A checklist is what all do I have to have in place before I take this call, you know. So let's do this after I have a house of my own. Let's do this after having an X amount of bank balance. Let's do this after I've spoken to and aligned with X number of people. Like I said, I mean, I knew I had to work in the social impact space when, you know, when I was 11 or 17, you know, I mean, so it, it, it came from a very, very deep place. Of course, I put all these checklists, I did, uh, you know, some Excel work, etc. But looking back, I knew in decisions that have defined me, I don't think I've ever used a decision-making framework to say whether this is the right thing to do or not. Did you have a plan B? Did your checklist include a kind of plan B saying if this doesn't work out for whatever reason, you would move back to the IT sector or did you even think in those lines? Yeah, I think it's, a, again, a great question. Uh, one is, if you see, I didn't make this transition on a flip of a coin. I really gave myself five years of uh, time to really evaluate whether this option makes sense. You know, so I mean, so that, that during that time, I think, uh, you know, there was always a window that was open to me to say, hey, if this really is going to go down south, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to give up. And for me, the interesting dichotomy of being an entrepreneur is two things. One is to always have that relentless ability to not give up, you know. And I, I remember times where I had a three-digit uh, bank balance, you know. It was really, uh, you know, no, nobody knew around me as to what I was going through. It was very easy to drop the towel and say, listen, this is it and I'm going to go because I was actually fairly employable uh, given the skills that I had. But you kind of have to have a doggedness to be able to continue during this time and see it through. And so you don't actually kind of work with a plan B in your mind saying, okay, can I leave? And that's probably the difference, biggest difference between an employee and an entrepreneur. But the second thing that I think is also that you have to know when to say that this is it. And this cannot continue anymore because the romanticism attached to entrepreneurship in your own head is so huge that it's like an addiction almost, right? It's like you don't want to give up. You think it's a great story. You want to keep continuing and you can ruin lives in the process. And I think the question that I keep uh, asking myself uh, that I, you know, every once in a while regularly is, is this still giving me a chance to give my son a good life, you know? And I think that's my anchor question. If at any point in time, the answer to that anchor question is, no, I'm not able to give it, I will quit something. And I'm very clear about it. You know? And that for me is, is the, it, like in the movie Inception, it's that rolling thing, right? It's to ask yourself whether this is still real. 
And as an entrepreneur, I think it's very important to have that spin, which you know is grounding you to a reality. And my spin, in some sense, is my son. You know, and the day I feel that this is not enabling me to be a good father and I'm not able to provide for him, I will happily quit Sattva and do something else. Yeah, I guess someday your son will also listen to your podcast. And uh, yeah, I'll be curious to hear about his view on it. Now, we've come so far to the point where you took this decision and, uh, you know, you started full time with Sattva. Uh, let's move forward to what happened after that. I'm sure you would have had some expectations and uh, the reality might have been a little different, uh, even though you had this long gestation period. Tell me about some of the surprises you had in the next phase when you started Sattva f- full-time or when you joined Sattva full-time. Yeah, I think even during the transition and uh, also post-transition, one of the biggest surprises I had was just how awful I was at this job. Uh, as, a, as an entrepreneur and as somebody who's running a business, uh, because, uh, you know, while there are so many benefits I took back from my life at SAP, it also had uh, prepared me for a certain type of role extremely well, which is where there is a missionary of people that are working and I have a very specific role. Um, and then that I, I do that role really well, I can be sure of success. And uh, the people that I worked with were largely homogeneous, you know. And uh, when I moved to Sattva, I realized so many of those assumptions I've made about my work environment don't hold true for what I was doing at Sattva at all, you know. So number one, of course, is uh, that A, I had to do sales. And uh, sales was never something that I was uh, I had done. It's also never taught in schools, I don't think. And it's a huge loss to the education system that we don't teach children how to sell uh, because it's so important to any career that you choose. And so I first had to learn how to sell, which is how to make money, because if you don't make money, there is really no business. The second big learning was how do you deliver uh, effectively with a group of people that are not homogeneous? Because in my experience, a lot of us work in the corporate environment with a fixed mindset about other people. We identify what people are good at. We put them in those places and we leverage them for their skills. But in a startup, you will never have people who are ready. You will always have to work with a growth mindset where you... You believe uh, very, very strongly that people are capable of more than what they themselves think they're capable of. And you'll have to find ways to coach, mentor, inspire them to be able to create value. And leadership hence becomes, delivery leadership especially becomes very, very critical. And that's something that, again, I learned on the job because in the beginning, I wasn't fun to work with at all because I expected you to be good on your job. I expected you to give you what I wanted and get, get it done. But I think the ability to empathize and work with diverse stakeholders and uh, have that growth mindset to the way we do things, I think was a huge um, learning for me as well. You know, the third is just business leadership skills. Again, when you work in a company like SAP, you're not really worried about how you're going to pay your monthly salary, you know, uh, because, you know, somebody out there is taking care of all of those things. But when you become an entrepreneur, you realize that you have to be extremely uh, prudent about uh, capital. You have to know how to spend it, how to, uh, you know, um, earn the capital and make sure that financially you're doing well. And cash flow as a concept, I think, was a huge learning for me when uh, when I started my own business. Uh, you know, I think more fundamentally, also, it was just this ability to fail regularly and still be able to pick yourself up and go ahead. And I keep saying that in a corporate environment, and then when I was at SAP, personally speaking, there were very few days where I felt that I failed. 
because in some sense failure manifests itself as a very collective systemic problem rather than an individual's uh, issue uh, but in a startup as an off as a founder or an entrepreneur you fail every day you know every day when you including yesterday i had a big setback so your ability to kind of accept that uh, fact that you are failing as regularly as you are and to continue to pick yourself up learn from those mistakes and keep moving i think was extremely important and i don't think i had that in me when i was at sap right i totally agree with the failure bit i think large corporations uh, we really don't fail at anything even failures are typically collective failures and nobody really does that kind of looking back at some things certain decisions um, which didn't go well organizations change and they just put under the rug i guess the other thing that strikes me is that the growth mindset that you talked about a little while back also applies to oneself doesn't it so you started off by saying uh, that you were bad as an entrepreneur but uh, one needed to have the growth mindset about oneself about yourself to believe that you could be much more even in the entrepreneur space where you didn't have that kind of experience and you learned on the job i want to i want to share an anecdote on that uh, manohar if you have time yes go ahead go ahead i remember i was in the i was in an airport um, you know around 2012 i think and i was talking to my co-founder and i remember explaining this to him saying my favorite cricketer at uh, of all i mean at that time was saurav ganguly you know and i i still i think a huge fan great captain when saurav ganguly came into the indian team they called him the god of offside right when when he retired from the indian team they called him the god of offside there was something that he was really good at and he leveraged it so well at the same time you looked at rahul dravid you know when he came into the cricket team they called him the wall they said he could be a great test player and you could see him throughout his career reinventing himself as a as a captain as a wicket keeper as a t20 player a one day player i remember his uh, 50 out of like i think 30 balls or 20 balls at one point which you would never imagine rahul dravid would join the indian cricket team was able to do and i remember standing in this airport and telling my co-founder that you know my mental model is going to shift from being saurav ganguly to rahul dravid and one of the things that was that came as a function of that and i still hold that uh, true today is you could play rahul dravid anywhere you know you could you could tell him you know this is what we need as a team and this is what you have to do and i and uh, since then i think since that year to now my role in the organization always gets decided last because they kind of place everyone else and figure out okay what else is left and what is important let's Uh, you know let's have ratish handle it in some sense and that for me is a great metaphor to talk about what we are talking about as an entrepreneur because for me the choice in the corporate life was very clear i could have made a career for myself in corporate strategy because that was my saurav ganguly role and i moved to a place of discomfort and 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 it's not just the first one time discomfort every year i realize that i have a gap i have to uh, fill and this this rahul dravid mindset in some sense is an extremely useful mindset to have because even as an entrepreneur running a 10 crore company is different from running a 50 crore company into a 100 crore company and just keeping that rahul dravid mindset the growth mindset i think is an extremely important quality for a person to actually build a scalable institution not just a cool organization that employs 10 people yeah yeah talking of cricket or uh, other fields analogies and how they've helped you shape your thinking i'm curious about also the writing and theater tracks that you mentioned earlier in the conversation how have those two earlier interests in those two areas helped you over the years and also in the work that you do today at satwa yeah i do believe that for any one to be able to solve a very complex problem you need four qualities you need 
a deep sense of curiosity about the problem. You need uh, a strong rigor, a rigorous approach and a very structured approach to solve that issue. But at the same time, you need uh, empathy for the individual that you're solving the problem for and, uh, and a deep understanding of who that person is and what will work for them. And you also need creativity because a lot of these problems that are complex don't often uh, have need a structured approach because a structured approach takes you to the same solution that hasn't worked for so long. It needs you to take a creative leap of faith and get to a starting point, which is not something anyone had imagined and work from there for you to be, get, for you to be able to get to the answer. And an engineering degree or a, or a structured education program prepares you really well for curiosity and rigor because that's what we really teach in our classrooms and it gets honed. And my experience at SAP, I think, has also helped me be a structured and a rigorous problem solver. But I really believe that my experience with creative arts and just that part of my brain that I think uh, you know, was actually involved in creative arts helps me build the other two things, which is creativity and empathy. Because what creative arts does is to really put people at the center of what you're doing and then helps you build a view of the problem that's not limited to numbers or structures alone, but it actually then brings a human angle to it. Yeah, so th there's the, whole, the narrative aspect as well, right? So you learn how to create narratives, you learn how to understand narratives, you learn to look at certain things in life as narratives in, it, in themselves. This is what a kind of uh, exposure to the creative arts, writing or theater uh, helps you with. Now, how does that narrative aspect also help you in your day-to-day -day work in the social sector? Yeah, immensely, immensely, because, uh, and I'd probably take it at three levels um, to kind of explain that to you. I think one, the, 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 the value of the narrative in even getting people interested in the social problems that we are talking of, I think is extremely important, you know, uh, because a lot of times problems are, are structured in terms of numbers and details and a, a, a very macroeconomic view, which never appeals to the people that we are talking to beyond a, a curious intellectual interest. You know, and I use the migration example as a problem. The migrant problem is not new. Uh, Indian migra migrants in India treated get treated as poorly as they have been over the last six months. But that the narrative around a migrant worker walking for thousands of miles and kilometers, I think, made that reality so much more vivid for so many people who now want to try and solve that problem across different parts of the society. And hence, the idea of seeing a problem and being able to describe that problem beyond the data to actually look at the people under that problem and build that narrative uh, for people to understand the enormity of the problem, I think, is extremely important. And I think that's been something that's extremely valuable and useful for me, given I talk to such diverse stakeholders uh, about social impact, from corporates to the foundations, to the governments, etc. Number one. Second is, I think, to, to as a leader, I believe building narratives and taking people uh, along with you as part of those narratives is important because working in the social sector is not fun. You know, because I, I always tell people that uh, in a corporate, the problem that you're solving is, the, is what the world wants you to solve. To make a company more profitable, everybody wants it. The client wants it, the stock markets want it, the investors want it, your company wants it, and you want it. You know, But if you're trying to make migrants' lives better, to be honest, 
there's not met too many people in the world who want it to happen the corporates that employ them really don't want that to happen as much the government has an ideological position on it but doesn't really want it as well so the person working in the social sector needs to kind of find that reason intrinsic motivation to be able to say this is what i am going to solve on a day to day basis and as a leader who's running a team of such young people who are mission driven being able to build the right narrative for them to put the problem that they're solving in perspective in the face of so many adversities that they will face i think has been extremely helpful in my uh, you know ability to lead and engage a team and the third is at just that at at a self level you know really like what what applies to the team applies to me as well because sometimes it seems insurmountable the problems that you're looking to solve when you see the the trade offs that you're making in your own life lifestyle at the level of your family and you're asking yourself this is all worth it right but to be able to then place the reality of the world in the narrative that appeals to you and makes sense to you and to use that as some sense your guiding light to be able to keep solving the problem i think is extremely helpful as well and all of this in the end is you know comes from a place of looking at the world not in numbers and black and white but to be able to find in the human spirit that i think stands behind a lot of this and i guess they become more important as the organization grows because you need uh, to communicate to a large group of people and i'm reminded of what yuval noah harari talked about in his book uh, sapiens where he talked about this concept of myths where you need to have these myths and create narratives around these myths to have a large group of people believe in what you're trying to you know communicate to them and so on right now we can look at the transition in different ways and i'm also look, thinking about it um, as as two occupations two lines of work right you had one line of work which is at sap corporate and we you mentioned a couple of things over there and also things like what helped you the structure and the process and the diversity and so on but there are certain other aspects which are very different i guess uh, across these two especially i'm curious also about the kind of people whom you saw or who come to these sectors right uh, the social sector versus the corporate sector talk a bit about that uh, my my job as as you can imagine as a leader is to hire people on a regular basis i've been doing that for the last 10 years and i always uh, i come with this fundamental belief that everybody wants to find meaning in their lives and everybody wants to help other people now their agency to be able to help help other people or their agency to derive that meaning in their lives might be limited but i think fundamentally what drives all of us is these two things is that is is there meaning in what i do and am i able to add value to other people and so people who come to the social sector often come from one of these three uh, the, the need to drive meaning and the need to help people manifest in three different ways the first category of people like the experience of engaging in solving a problem on the ground and deriving that deep sense of satisfaction and seeing a child smile in helping a young lady get through her life uh, and so on you know that that uh, strong and deeply evocative experience of actually helping someone directly i think appeals to them a lot the second sort of people like the work that they do the skills that they have but they would like to have a narrative to their own lives which is positive and which has a deeper impact on the society they'd like to tell themselves their friends and their family uh, that you know the work that they do day to day while is very similar to the work that is done in a corporate environment actually creates more meaning for uh, people and society you know that's the second set of uh, people the third group of people are those that 
really like solving complex problems. I mean, for them, truly, what creates meaning is this idea of taking a very, very challenging problem and going after it and creating that sense of value. And the social sector has one of the one of the some of the most wicked problems that you can find ever. Like I said earlier, you know, there there are no. Uh, tailwinds and then you're standing up at up at uh, headwinds at, with very limited capital and the uh, resources and i think that fascinates a lot of people and and the choices that people make uh, in in how they contribute or work in the social sector i think depends on where they what their narratives are and how they approach it etc and i often tell people that if the if you're of type one which is that you like the experience of engaging with people you might not want to have a career in the social sector you know, because working in the social sector, and I will talk about it a little bit in more detail, is a lot like working in a company. So the type A people could be good volunteers. They might not want to work uh, in a social sector organization because the volunteer role actually gets them exactly what they want. The type B and type C people often find it more interesting to work in the social sector over a long run because it aligns a lot more to what they thought their work will be. Now, through such a transition, I guess several things may have changed on the personal side, right? Your habits and routines may have changed. Your reading habits may have changed. The kind of people you meet may have changed. I'm interested in hearing about this side as well. What are some of the things that changed on the personal front as you moved from one sector to another? Yeah, right at the beginning of the podcast, that uh, you know, you started by saying, Manohar, that uh, this is not a nine-to-five job, and uh, you know, you you need a different way of looking at it. And I know you meant it as a metaphor, but I want to pick up on that. I am very particular about trying to make my job something that's not a 24-hour job, you know. And I think one of the disciplines that I'm trying to create to myself is to really be able to stop working at 6.30 and and have that time for my family and for my son. Uh, so I think that need to bind the work I do uh, into a, a structured day where I don't work all the time, I think has been a constant endeavor over especially the last few years. Uh, and also given my experience between 2012 and 2014, where I literally burnt myself out uh, working all the time. The second um, uh, change I think that has happened is um, that overall I've become much less sure of a lot of the opinions that I had compared to what I did when I was at SAP. Like I said before, if you'd asked me, how do you solve education? I would have said, I have an answer. You know, put computers on the hand of children, improve teachers, etc. And I would have been very sure of those answers. I think now I realize that problems that we that we have uh, are extremely complicated and they're a lot more nuanced. So, a I think I'm a, I, I spend a lot more time thinking about these problems. There is, in some sense, an ongoing, like they say in software, a demon thread that runs, uh, you know, in my mind about um, how do we solve some of these problems. And I think it's become a habit to continue to, at one way or the other, think about the larger issues in the society on a regular basis and seeing how I would formulate and solve problems. The third thing that I would say, I think probably has shifted is, is interestingly, uh, my interest in fiction. Uh, I mean, I've always loved reading fiction, but I I do now read and uh, thrive on fiction uh, because, um, you know, what we talked about narrative before, there is so much negativity around, uh, you know, in in the work that we do. And there is also... Very few things or very few people that inspire deep inspiration in, in the work we do today, you know. And as an entrepreneur, it's also true that you absorb a lot of the other people's lack of hope and, you know, desp- despondency and so on. And I find it so much more um, 
useful to actually read books like Harry Potter because for me they become a fount of a lot of inspiration they become a fount of hope and uh, you know it's in a very sort of a um you know twisted way you know i keep telling myself if a lavender road kid can solve the darkest lord or the wizard of the world what i'm doing is not probably as bad and i find constantly seek and find inspiration there and i think since i started satpa i've probably read the entire harry potter series book 1 to 7 five times end to end so i think that's probably an interesting uh, you know change that has happened that i probably wouldn't have done let's say 10 years ago so who are your favorite characters in harry potter uh i feel most deeply about sirius i think the death of sirius is probably the saddest moment in literature <laughs> uh i think it's uh, extremely unfortunate i think that's probably the one uh, character i feel uh, you know i feel strongly about and i mean i am a huge fan of uh, the, 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 the harry potter and ron and hermione i think i mean and really uh, though they are the center of the story and they're in every scene uh it truly takes a lot and i think it's it's easy to not see the amount of maturity and growth that harry potter shows in the books that he does he makes the right choice uh, in so many times that he didn't have to you know and i think that sense of righteousness or the sense of doing the right thing i think for me i find it massively inspiring especially in the work that i do yeah of course we have our own yudhishthira who does the right things goes the right way as a, as a, another great example is there any specific character in harry potter whom you identify with most not really not really i think like i mean as an as a protagonist of course harry potter is who i read the story as you know that i think will be true but i don't think i see myself as wise as dumbledore or <laughs> as twisted as any other characters no <laughs> no i wasn't leading to that <laughs> I was probably thinking more of Harry's cousin Dudley Dursley. <laughs> Now since we're talking about books um and maybe this is a good time to you know wind this conversation down what would be a couple of book recommendations that you would have for our listeners you know something from the social sector and something that's influenced you uh, from a social sector point of view one of the things that like i said is going with the same thread of hope and optimism i would say factfulness by hans rosling is a book that everybody should read uh, because the media does such a great job of telling us that the world is going to the dogs that we sometimes don't recognize the fact that the world is actually getting better yeah. and i think it's extremely important for us to keep that view in mind i also deeply uh, enjoy the works that, that have been done by abhijit banerjee and that's the flow um, poor economics is one book and their recent book also is a great read for anybody who really wants to understand how complex some of these problems are and how sometimes the most obvious solutions don't apply uh to the problems we are trying to solve you know and i think i think they're more uh, they're very readable and they're very insightful i think that's a uh, that's uh, that's an other um, recommendation i would give uh, but from a leadership point of view for people who sort of looking at how to solve problems or how to run organizations i find uh, ram charan's books extremely helpful uh, both execution as a book and also the leadership pipeline i think both of these books I, i for me as a as a as a leader i think had a significant impact in what we do uh, and another enduring favorite is the book goal by elia goldrat i think it's a it's a great book to talk about as a frame also to talk about how to solve problems both within the organization and outside right now the hans rosling book reminded me of uh, enlightenment now by steven pinker where he also does a similar job of uh, dispelling commonly held myths about you know lack of progress and so on and i think that that's also a valuable addition to this list 
Right. This has been a very good conversation. My last question, Ratish. With the benefit of hindsight, would you have done anything differently looking back? Yeah, definitely. I think I would have um, done a bunch of things differently. I think one, I would have, um, in general, been more fiscally responsible throughout my life. I think I I probably, when I was young, didn't uh, look at uh, money. And I think there's a whole narrative that I have about how people who come from a place of poverty look at money. I think I underestimated how important it was. And I think now I realize it's a lot more important. I think in general, I would have been more fiscally responsible about who I was. And two is I probably wouldn't have done that phase between 2012 and 2014 with the way I did it. I think that was probably, I think that just the impact it had, not just on me, but more than me. I think the other people, I think is something I definitely regret. And I, I think that uh, should have been more mindful of the choices I made during that time. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I think where I am as a person today, I think I have a, a probably a more balanced view to uh, life and to the needs of other people. All right. So I think that's a good place to end this long and very nice conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Pratish. Thank you. Thank you.